So we are continuing our lessons in Christology and um, we are moving now. Uh, well, first off, last time we were together, we talked about the prophetic office of Jesus Christ and how the uh, prophetic office of Christ, um, or rather that threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, him being prophet, priest, and king, um, he did not put on the shelf when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, but rather he continues his threefold office as a prophet, priest, and king. So again, Jesus Christ here on earth had a ministry of being a mediator, which means that he is a prophet, priest, and king. Um, well, one of the things it means. And then when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, his threefold office of being a prophet, priest, and king didn't end. But rather, he extends that office and continues that threefold office in and through the church. So we looked at last time we were together that we are um, an extension of Christ's prophetic office. Um, we uh, we learned what a true prophet is, what to look for in a false prophet. Now we're going to come to the second uh, office of Christ, which is his priesthood, the priesthood of Christ. Um, when I was studying for this, reading various systematic theologies, um, I noticed that there isn't a lot that they say compared to all of the other things they say about Christ. And the reason is because the priesthood of Christ can be, uh, in one sense, very simple, and in another sense, very, very complex, in the sense of there's just a lot of information. Not that it's hard to understand. This is a lot of information, and the reason is because, and, maybe, and I think I've noticed this a long time ago, is that anytime you are bringing Old Testament in, in which we do a lot of times in, in our theologizing, but specifically when we talk about the priesthood of Christ, we've got to talk about the Old Testament, specifically the Old Testament priests, their nature, their work, and all that. So this evening, we're going to talk about the priesthood of Christ, and um, we're going to do so in looking at... Uh, a portrait of a priest. So, um, what was the function of a priest in the Old Testament? And then we're going to see how those functions or descriptions of the Old Testament priests fit really nicely with who Christ is. And then at the end, we're going to look at, um, we're going to get the help from Francis Turretin, who will give us a very nice layout of how Christ's priesthood is superior than the Old Testament priesthood. I mean, in a lot of ways, not in a lot of ways, this is the way that the Old Testament priests shadow and look forward to this one priest coming, which would be Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's priestly office is far superior. I mean, if you read the book of Hebrews, um, you find that one of the main themes in the book of Hebrews is that everything is better. Everything is better. And what the brother Hebrews is doing, he's, he's looking back at the Old Testament and now looking, looking at the present and the future of what we have and what Christ has earned for us. And because of Christ, everything is better than what we had in the Old Testament. So, Christ's priesthood in general. What do we mean when we say the priesthood of Christ? Francis Sheraton says, The priests of Christ is that function of the mediatorial office according to which he performs those things with God, 
which must be performed for sinners, both by offering himself up once as a victim for them and by interceding, interceding for them always with the Father. Okay? So it is a function of the mediatorial office of Christ, Christ's uh, priesthood. Um, and uh, for Turretin boils it down to really just two functions, and that is to offer yourself up as a sacrifice and then also make intercession um, um, on the behalf of the people. The portrait of a priest. The portrait of a priest. Priests were essentially those who would serve God, serve God's people, um, uh, and we read of this description in Hebrews 5, verse 1. It reads, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on the behalf of, uh, of the people in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is also clothed in weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for himself, as well as for the people. So we see in Hebrews 5, verse 1, a very succinct description of the office of a priest, specifically the portrait of him. Who is he to be to the people? We see here um, four descriptions. Priests were chosen among humanity. Priests acted on the behalf of humanity. They offered gifts and sacrifices to God. And they offered blessings and peace on the behalf of the people, or to the people. We're going to break these descriptions down. Um, number one, priests were chosen from among humanity. Priests were chosen from among humanity. That is to say, the priests in the Old Testament were chosen by God. Priests were chosen by God. A person didn't will himself to be a priest. Uh, a person couldn't claim a person couldn't demand, a person couldn't request to be a priest, but rather it is God alone who appointed men into the office of a priest. Simply put, uh, priests were not um, like the presidents that we see who campaign to move into the office of being a president, but rather priests were appointed by God and when we consider how God appointed men to be priests, uh, we see that this fits nicely with who our Christ is. It is the Son, not the Father, nor the Spirit, who became man for us and was appointed our high priest. Again, it was the Son, the second person of the Trinity, not the Father and not the Spirit, who became man for us and was appointed our high priest. John Gill says that Christ should officiate as priest was determined upon in the eternal counsels of God. He was set forth or foreordained to be a propitiation, as Romans 25 says. That is, to be a propitiation sacrifice to make satisfaction for the sins of his people, which is one part of Christ's priestly office, on which redemption by his blood is founded. John Gill will all go on to say, to this office, Christ was called of God. Again, to this office, a priesthood, Christ, the eternal son, was called of God, the father. He did not glorify himself to be called a high priest, but his divine father, whose only begotten son he is, called him to take upon this office, invested with him, and swore him into it in the council and covenant of peace. 
Essentially, what John Gill is referring to and alluding to here is what we call that covenant of redemption or the covenant of peace that was made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the key thing here is to remember, to remember is that the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decreed that the eternal Son would assume human flesh and offer a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Again, the whole Trinity. And when we say covenant of redemption, a covenant of peace, we want to think that it is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sitting on a round table and them um, trying to figure out who is going to do what. Right? One God, of course. There is one will. And three persons, the three persons, um, by their one will, decreed, unchangeably decreed, that the eternal Son, not the eternal Father, not the eternal Spirit, but the eternal Son, would assume human flesh and offer a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Jesus Christ, uh, and this is important to note, saints, that Jesus Christ did not become priest when he was dying on the cross. Jesus Christ did not become a priest when he was dying on the cross. Uh, Jesus Christ did not become a priest when he uh, laid his body down upon the altar of Calvary. But rather, the priesthood of Christ is not founded upon when he sacrificed himself for sin. But as John Kill says, the foundation of Christ's priestly office is the eternal decree of God. Now, why is this important? Because it's wonderful news. Because it tells us that our salvation, before we even sin, a great mystery that is, was set in stone in Christ. That our salvation, before we sinned, was set in stone in Christ, in the deep, mysterious ages of eternity. The eternal Son was, as the old boys would say, and I mean, I mean, all the guys have been dead forever, he was our surety. He was our, he was our guarantor of, of, of salvation. This is what he, Revelation 13, 8 speaks of. Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That before Adam had fell into sin, that the eternal Trinity has already made a remedy for sin. And that is the eternal Son becoming flesh. Secondly, priests had to be chosen from humanity. Now notice, priests had to be chosen from humanity. Priests had to be among men in order to mediate for men. Priests, uh, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but priests were the mediators for the people of of God. So in order for men, um, uh, or in order to, to have a mediator, uh, priests had to be among men. So a priest couldn't be an angel, so to speak. Uh, a priest couldn't be um, an animal without a rational soul. But rather, a priest had to be a human being. He had to be among men in order to mediate for men. Priests had to be of flesh and blood. One writer says a priest had to be a human because humans are uniquely and distinctively made in the image of God. And therefore can mediate this relationship between God and the people. Only a priest could image people to God and God to the people. And again, saints, doesn't this description of a priest fit our Christ nicely? John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
One of the great wonders of the Christian faith, as you know, is the incarnation of the Son of God. I mean, no one in this room can uh, explain it to the point where we all can comprehend it. It is a mystery beyond all mysteries. But this great mystery uh, is what we believe in, is what we confess. It is the eternal Son who took on all of what it means to be man, yet without sin. And what that means is the eternal son assumed a human mind, a human will, human emotions, a human soul. All of these tired, um, had to use the restroom, uh, all of these things uh, that constitute us and our humanity, yet without sin, the eternal son assumed for us. Jesus Christ was bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. The eternal son, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. Now, why did the eternal son assume human flesh? Well, there's many reasons why the eternal son assumed human flesh. But for our purposes this evening, we can say that the eternal son assumed human flesh so that he can undergo Human suffering. The eternal son assumed human flesh so that he can assume or undergo human suffering. So that he can undergo the passion, our human passions. Remember, saints, that our God is eternal, immutable, infinite. He's unable to feel pain and he's unable to die. So if God was to remedy us from sin and if he was to become man and if there needed to be a sacrifice in order for us to be remedied of sin then God must assume a nature that is capable of undergoing suffering Cyril of Alexandria says this is this was uh, he says this this was a manner of salvation of the whole world and since on this account the son wished to suffer even though he was beyond the power of suffering in his nature as God. So here he says, the son wished to suffer, but the son as son, as God, was unable to suffer because he is God. What do we do? Cyril, he wrapped himself in flesh that was capable of suffering and revealed it as his very own, so that even the suffering might be said his, because it is his own. it was his own body which suffered and no one else's. This is why Peter can say that on the cross, God shed blood for us. I mean, even though Jesus Christ suffered in his humanity, the person that's suffering is the eternal son. It is the eternal son that is suffering for us but only according to a nature that is able to suffer. He suffers as man. And because he is God, his blood is efficacious. He can atone for sins for all time. Again, Cyril says, he made his very own body capable of tasting death and capable of coming back to life again so that he himself might remain impassable and yet be said to suffer in his flesh. Cyril will also say something interesting He says uh, 
if, if, if the eternal son suffered as God, it is nothing to us, but he suffered as man, we conquer in him. And that is a very beautiful way to say it, because Jesus Christ, we can say that the eternal son does not, he does not save us outside of us, but he becomes one of us and saves us. In us, he saves us, right? Thirdly, priests acted on the behalf of humanity. The priests entered God's presence representing, mediating, and interceding for God's people. The priests would enter into the holiest parts of the tabernacle or tent and present to God a sacrifice on the behalf of the people. The priests represented not only themselves, but the whole nation as well. And saints, again, we see this description fit our Christ nicely. For Jesus Christ represented us. The priests in the Old Testament, again, represented others, represented the whole nation. Christ represents us. Christ is our federal head. And again, that's language that we all heard before. Uh, but to be a federal head simply means that Jesus Christ represents others. He represents others. To be a federal head is to be a representative. And to go even further, a federal head performs on the behalf of the people. So whatever the head does... The body does as well. When we look in the overall story of the Bible, we see that there are two main federal heads, and that is Adam in Christ. A.W. Pink, and I didn't look this up. A.W. Pink, if you if you ever read him, um, and I'm not bashing the guy, but he has a tendency to plagiarize. So I don't know if he actually said this. Because the, the quote that I, I, I said earlier to you, John Gill... That was actually pink. I looked it up and I said, that, I've heard that before. And that was actually word for word John Gill. So, and he didn't even quote John Gill. So I don't know if this is pink, but we're going to say it's pink. There have been two federal heads, Adam and Christ, which, uh, with, each, uh, with each of whom God entered into a covenant. Each of them acted on behalf of others, each legally represented as definitive people, so much so that all whom they represented were regarded by God as being in them. Adam represented the whole human race. Christ represented all those whom the Father had in his eternal counsels given to him. And this is what the Bible teaches. 1 Corinthians 15.22, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. As you already know, this is just refreshment for everyone. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was our federal head. He represented the entire human race. When Adam fell into sin, we sinned in him. Adam separated us from God. And this is why we needed one to come who could represent us properly, who can be a better federal head. We could not reconcile ourselves to God. So we needed God to reconcile us to him. And he does so. He comes in human flesh. All that the incarnate son, Jesus Christ, did, he does for us. He lives for us, dies for us. He rises for us. Christ as a priest represents us. And now, how does Christ as a priest represent us? Well, he does so in two ways. He is the victim, and he's also the priest. He's the victim, but he's also the priest. Christ represents us as the one who presents the sacrifice and as the sacrifice itself. And if you read the older theologians, they're going to say that Christ is even the altar. And they're going to they're going to extend the priesthood of Christ or the priesthood in the Old Testament and all that pertain to the priest 
to Christ and, and make just the most craziest connections. But we see that just as the priest in the Old Testament represented others, uh, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament priest represents his people. Now, um, I was, before we move on, move on to the next point, this is important for me to say, I always ponder in, in this, is what would it be like if we still had to offer sacrifices? And, and it's something that, you know, we amen, but if you really go back to think, like, I thank God that we no longer have to offer a sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice before God, uh, that Jesus Christ has done for us uh, what we don't not, we don't have to do now, uh, and that is offer himself as a once for all sacrifice. I, I mean, sometimes God, the, these, these simple truths are just things that we are to just glory, uh, give God glory in light of. Um, so thus far we have seen that Christ, just like the Old Testament priests, was called by God. He was chosen from humanity. He acted on the behalf of humanity. And we also see that the Old Testament priests offered gifts and sacrifices to God. Uh, gifts and sacrifices to God. The priests in the Old Testament were to enter God's presence with gifts and sacrifices on the behalf of the people. And these gifts and sacrifices were to be a pleasing aroma to God. They were to satisfy the God of justice. And this type of pleasing sacrifice that the priest offered to God is seen in our Lord's sacrifice upon the altar of Calvary. In fact, listen to the way Paul speaks of Christ's um, sacrifice for sin. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a please or as a fragrant aroma. So here Paul is saying that the nature of Christ's sacrifice is a pleasing aroma to God. In love, Christ offers himself unto God. And how does, again, Paul view this sacrifice? It is a fragrant aroma, it is a pleasing aroma. Now, it's important to note that a sacrifice in and of itself is not pleasing to God. God is not pleased because you have presented to him a sacrifice. I mean, if you take that view, then read Malachi, and you'll see that God is not to accept just any sacrifice. But rather, the pleasure of the aroma comes in a sacrifice properly made to cleanse and remove the defilement of the people. So it's not just, here you go, God, a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice that is that is proper. The sacrifice that God finds a pleasing aroma are those sacrifices by those who offer to God that which is properly due to him externally with a sincere heart. So there's two things that go into uh, a sacrifice, an inward, sincere heart, and an outward, visible uh, re- representation of the sincerity of your heart, the best of what you have. This is clearly stated in Psalm 51, 16-17. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So if God was just pleased with any other sacrifice... Um, then we can offer him the lamest of the lame. But rather, the sacrifices that God finds the light in are one of proper heart posture and one that visibly offers to God what's rightly due to him. 
And this is what we see our Christ offer to God. Uh, on the behalf of the people, he's cut to the heart. I mean, you see, um, he understands uh, very well in the heights of his intellect the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. And we see that when he's, he's weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, he, he sees the, 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 what, what sin has brought upon mankind when he's weeping over his friend Lazarus, even though he knows that just a few moments he's going to rake, wake a Lazarus up from the dead. Jesus Christ understands our sin uh, in a lot of ways better than we do because he understands the holiness of God. Not that he's a sinner himself, but because he understands the majesty and the holiness of who God is and what sin is to God, an offense to him. And lastly, and because of that, we see that Christ offers himself up. He offers the best of what one could offer. I mean, what's what's the best one could offer to God? God himself, an infinite sacrifice. Lastly, priests were to pronounce blessing and peace to God, uh, to the people. Priests were to pronounce blessing and peace to the people. In the Old Testament, as the priests or the high priest left the tent meeting, they lifted up their hands and they blessed the people. We read of this in Leviticus 9, verses 22-23. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering, the burn offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And what does this blessing look like? Well, we read in number 6, verses 24 to 26. And this is what Pastor Antonio reads for us uh, at that time of the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his hands, uh, lift up his face to you and give you peace. This is a blessing and a peace uh, upon the people from the high priest to the people. Uh, they would come out, lift up their hands, and pronounce, you have peace with God. And again, saints, does this description <laughs> not fit our, our Christ nicely? Uh, Jesus Christ lifts up his own hands, does he not? Uh, rather, he stretches forth his arms. At Calvary, Christ stretches forth his arms. And what is he doing there? He's purchasing peace for us. He's purchasing peace for us, not by silver and gold, but by his infinite blood. As Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ pronounces peace upon us. In his life, he's pronouncing peace upon us. In his death, he's pronouncing peace upon us. In his resurrection, he's pronouncing peace upon us. Ascension, pronouncing peace upon us. So those are the descriptions of a priest. Now, there is one that uh, I didn't mention, uh, and I was going to do like a um, figure it out, and then next time we come together, let's see if you came with the right answer. But let me tell you what it is. It's simply that priests were to make intercession on behalf of the people. But that's going to take me too long because there's just a lot I want to say on that um, because we're going to get into uh, Christ's priestly work office. Um, and when we talk about his present priestly office, we got to talk about his interceding for us. So we'll talk about that next week. But <clears throat> how does Christ's priesthood, how does it, um, 
how is it better and far superior than the Old Testament priests? And I had, I was writing down notes and things like that. Um, and then I just read Francis Turretin and I said, you know what? I can't do better, any better than this. So I'm just going to read it to you. And, um, it's very, very, very simple. But what he's going to do here, um, is he's simply going to give a, he's going to compare and contrast the Levitical priests and how Christ as a priest is far superior than the Old Testament Levitical priests. So, Francis Turretin. He says, how is it better? Number one, as to the persons. For with regard to the persons, the Levitical priests were taken from the tribe of Levi alone. But Christ was to spring from the tribe of Judah. They were mere men. He, the true Son of God. They were sinners who had need to offer themselves he was the holy and immaculate who ought to offer only who ought to offer only for us and not for himself. They differed from the victims which they offered and had to make expiation with others' blood. He was at the same time priest and victim who delivered himself up for us and by his own blood entered into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. They were many, but Christ stands alone needing neither a successor or vicar. Number two, as to the efficacy, as to the efficacy. With respect to efficacy, the Levitical was weak and useless, having by itself no power to expiate sin and purge the conscious. On this account, the law is said to have made nothing perfect, now, what frequently offered the innumerable victims could not do, this single victim, Jesus Christ, once offered, accomplished. The priesthood of Christ is most efficacious, both for justification through the infinite merit of his own righteousness and for sanctification through the power of the Spirit. As to perfection. With respect to perfection, because the Levitical, uh, Levitical was inefficacious, it was on that account also imperfect. Insomuch as the same sacrifices had to be repeated every year and every day. But because the priesthood of Christ was of infinite value and efficacy, on that account it was most perfect and exhaustive. So that the offering having been made once can neither, uh, it neither can or ought to be repeated. Christ cannot offer himself once again because it's of infinite value. Number five, and I think this is the last one. It is as to duration, as to duration. Finally, as to duration, the Levitical was temporary, both with respect to the order, which was to continue for a certain time only and afterwards be abolished. And with respect to persons who being mortal could not live long, and had to uh, have successors. But as to Christ, is immortal and living forever. He is thus an eternal and unchangeable priesthood, in which he has no predecessor, no successor, in which he administers not only on earth, but also exercises perpetually in heaven, that he may plead for us. Um, you can look at this after, if you want to just see it more. But... In other words, Jesus Christ does for us 
what all the Old Testament priests could not do with respect to his person, with respect to the sacrifice that is made, and with respect to the duration of the sacrifice that is offered. Jesus Christ is better. And saints, as we close, we have great encouragement for us. If you have time this evening, and afterwards, if you're not going to, you know, go to your mom's or, or whatever, read the book of Hebrews. Because what we read in the book of Hebrews, specifically in chapter 10, verse 10 through 14, are glorious reminders and a glorious reality for us. That we do not have to earn our salvation. We don't have to present silver and gold to God. We don't have to present a lamb, a spotless lamb before God. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says, And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ, having offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He was made perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let's pray.